Amen. Well, you guys can open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. I'll give you a moment to open there. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Mark 15, which is that we are right in the middle of the heart of the Gospel. We have been hearing of the testimony of the death, and now the burial, and soon we will hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And You know, over the last several weeks, what we've seen is that Jesus had to endure a lot in the final moments of his life. We know that Jesus had to endure the pain of being betrayed by his friends, uh, how he was abandoned by all of his disciples. Jesus endured the pain of religious and civil rejection as their Messiah and King. We know that Jesus endured the pain of beating and of scourging, He carried a cross, and and he was nailed to a cross on a hill called Calvary. Jesus endured all of that pain in his physical body, because Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. And so all that pain that he experienced, even though he is the Son of God, he suffered in pain as a man. And we've looked throughout the word over these last few weeks to behold Jesus, our Savior. We've we've seen the incredible work that he accomplished for us at the cross. I know that last week, many of us were moved to tears to think about what it cost Jesus to save sinners. And, you know, there's been some hard things that we've been listening to, some hard things to hear, but hasn't it been good for our souls to be reminded afresh of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross? And, and, And... Yet there's still more for us to look at today. We're going to look today to consider more suffering that Jesus had to endure. And and can I say that today what we're going to look at is, is in in my mind, has to be the greatest suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. You know, it wasn't the scourging upon his back. It wasn't the nails that were driven through his body. What was it? What was the most painful thing that Jesus had to endure on the cross? I believe that it was the spiritual suffering that Jesus had to face on the cross, and that's what we're going to look at today. Because it was at the cross that God the Father treated God the Son as a rejected sinner so that you and I could be accepted in his righteousness. Amen? But never before had Jesus had to taste the Father's wrath. And the prospect of it, we remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, had Jesus laying out prostrate on the floor. He was sweating what were like great drops of blood to the ground, and he was praying to his Father. He said, Father, can this cup and this cup of your wrath pass from me? And yet he prayed, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And Jesus got up from that garden accepting the will of God. And the will of God was that he was pleased to crush the son in order that you and I could be adopted as his children. And Jesus accepted that that cost and that suffering. In the coming weeks, we're going to see the great victory that Jesus accomplished at the cross. We're going to see that Jesus came forth from the grave, that we're going to see him be put in today. But he comes from the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated death and the devil once and for all. 
in order that today we can look upon the cross, we can see the work of what Jesus was doing there, and our prayer would be that today we would come and, and behold our Savior, that we'd see again with fresh insight, or, or maybe for the first time today you would see that Jesus suffering on a cross brings you salvation. And that by receiving this, we would grow in another degree of glory, of love, and appreciation for what our Savior, King Jesus, did for us. So you ready to look at it? Mark chapter 15, verse 33, let's read it. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Mark has been helpful to give us certain timestamps of the critical moments that happened in the death of Jesus. And since he was writing to a Jewish audience, what Mark does is he used the common way of telling time. And the days were measured by the hours beginning at the time of sunrise. And so since we know that during Jerusalem in this time was the time of Passover, sunrise would have been somewhere around 6 a.m. And we learned last week in verse 25 that it was the third hour that they crucified Jesus. So 9 a.m., Jesus was nailed to the cross. And so where we pick up today, Jesus has now been on the cross for three hours. You know, for three hours, Jesus was feeling the weakening of his body with time. And, and as his muscles would begin to cramp and stretch out on the cross, you know, we can read uh, modern medical journals that have done research on crucifixion. And these medical journals sort of talk about the different ways that people would have died on crosses. And a common way that people died on crosses was because of suffocation. See, because in order for a crucified person to get a good breath of air into their lungs, what they would have to do is as they were stretched out, nails in their hands and nails in their feet, they had to, because they were in this slouched position, they would have to push their body up off the nails, get a breath of air, and then slouch back down. Trying to do that repeatedly as the muscles were being stretched out of the body, as the joints would begin to tear, the crucified person would eventually just suffocate because they didn't have the determination or the will to pull off and get another breath. Now, most people don't think that Jesus died that way of suffocation. Medical examiners actually suspect that what Jesus died of was something of a heart attack. That Jesus had something like an aortic aneurysm. And the reason for this is based on the details that are given when they pierce his side after he had died and, and what flowed from his side. However, where we're at right now in the story, Jesus isn't dead yet. Because the Father still needed to do what he had planned to do. It was the sixth hour, that would be noon, and there was a change in the atmosphere. Literally, the sky turned dark, which was unusual for that time and that season in Israel. But the God of creation was casting a shadow upon the land. I, I even think that creation itself seemed to groan with this eager expectation for what is about to happen. You know, I can't explain exactly why darkness covered the land. Some have suggested that there was a solar eclipse 
or maybe just a massive cloud of darkness, or just some sort of supernatural darkening of the cosmos. We don't exactly know where this darkness came from, but what I can tell you is that the Father was prepared to pour out his holy wrath towards sin on his only begotten Son, and isn't that enough cause for the cosmos to dim its lights? Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, could see the darkness come in. As he braced himself spiritually for what was about to happen. Perhaps Jesus, as he watched the darkness cover the earth, was thinking about eternity past and the perfect, unbroken fellowship that he had with the Father and with the Spirit. Or maybe Jesus was thinking in his mind about eternity future and how sinners perfected would be able to join in that fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit and with the Son. But right here in the middle of history, between eternity past and eternity future, Jesus would experience a break in that fellowship. As God would make him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus was bracing himself and preparing himself for the first time he had ever experienced separation from the Father. In verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, this is the moment, guys, this is the moment where we have our acceptance. This is the sound of sin's price being paid in full. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, this is the cry of heart-wrenching, soul-crushing, spiritual pain. And this is the greatest moment of suffering that Jesus had to endure as he was on the cross. Trying to put into words to explain to you guys like what Jesus was hearing, experiencing here is hard to do. Like I, I sat on these words and I struggled to write anything down in my notes. You know, because our finite words are always gonna fail to express exactly what it is that Jesus was doing here. Um, you know, can we? Can we really comprehend God's holy wrath towards sin being poured out on his son. You know, we can sit and we can ponder this, and we should. I, I encourage you that you should think about what happened here, because, you know, I know that for, for me, I have at times experienced what seems like separation from God. I know that I've experienced in my soul what feels like being forsaken by God. Maybe you have too. But I don't think anything that I've experienced or you've experienced even comes close to touch what Jesus experienced here. That anguish of soul that Jesus had as he was separated from God so that God could look upon us, so that we would never be separated, so that we would never be forsaken. 
And so what Jesus was doing as he hung on that cross and as he cried out that cry is that he was, he was actually fulfilling prophecy again. Because in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm that is just chock full of details about the cross of Jesus, that psalm opens with that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And guys, this is unusual for Jesus to refer to God in this way, to, to say, my God, my God, because Jesus was the man that was used to calling God Abba. You know, he had taught his disciples a new way to relate to God. He was calling him Abba, but here he calls him my God because the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world was receiving the crushing blow of wrath towards sin in his own body. And then he asked, why have you forsaken me? And that is the most raw and real question that anybody could ever ask while suffering. Maybe you've actually asked God that question. Jesus knows that suffering. And this question had to have come at the height of his suffering. As I said, I don't know that we could ever fathom the heights of what Jesus was feeling. And so we could linger here for a while. We could talk more about these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they're powerful. And, and I hope that just even what was said there would just help us grasp the weightiness of what Jesus experienced on the cross. But we have to move forward Look at verse 35, it says, And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Like, how rough of a contrast is that? Here it is, the Son of God, pouring out his soul in anguish before God, and the bystanders are like, Oh, he's calling Elijah. And, and the contrast of that is rough, and, and Jesus is working through that final act of salvation, crying out to God, and the bystanders think he's calling Elijah, which was like the poster boy of the Old Testament. And when Jesus was, remember, transfigured on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, what did the disciples do? They're like, ooh, let's make little tents for these guys. And then the Father spoke from heaven, one of the few times in the Gospels where we hear him speak audibly from heaven, and he said, here is my son, listen to him. And these bystanders don't seem to be listening to him very well. Because as they hear him say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, perhaps they heard Eloi, which was Aramaic for my God, and they thought he was saying, Elijah. Eloi sounds like Elijah. Maybe that's the reason why they, they misheard it. Or maybe they were just hearing what they wanted to hear. Maybe they just were missing Jesus and they were just wanting to see Elijah. When the father said, this is my son, listen to him. And then in verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and putting it on a reed, gave it to him to drink and said, uh, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So this person runs, goes and grabs some sour wine, which was a drink in those days that the Romans used. It was sort of more refreshing than water, I guess. And, and they would go and um, use this to just to, to revive themselves, to refresh themselves. And this bystander goes and and he's taking this stick with a sponge on the end and reaching it up to Jesus. I mean, I, I feel like during this time, there's sort of this eerie expectation in all these people of what's going to happen. 
You know, there's clearly some darkness filling the air. This sort of soulish cry that Jesus poured out to his father, like, what was that? And they're reaching up the stick to, to reach Jesus. They're just looking for, you know, by a little bit more time so that Elijah can come down and take Jesus off the cross. They're waiting to see another amazing miracle. But no one was coming to save Jesus. Not the Father, not the Spirit, not an angel, not Elijah, not his disciples. Jesus actually wouldn't even save himself. No one was coming to save Jesus off the cross because Jesus had to die on a cross to save us. And so in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The loud cry was this word to telestai, a word that means it is finished. And it was a word that was often stamped on a debt release to show that a debt had been paid in full. And Jesus had completed the work that he was determined to do. He had paid for the sins of mankind on the cross by absorbing all of the wrath of God and dying as a substitute for sinners. Jesus paid right then and there in full, once and for all, our sins. And it says he breathed his last. Jesus died right there. I mean, those are the words we read when Jesus died. You know, I I don't know if you've ever been with somebody who has breathed their last breath. There's something so surreal about it when you've been with somebody who, in their final breath, they die. You know, when you see a a person you love there who is is dead, you've just watched them breathe that last breath, there's this surreal thing, as I said, where, where all of the animation of their spirit and their character is just with one final breath gone. You know, you, you're, you're looking there and you're seeing their body, but it's just like a shell of who they are. And, and if you've experienced that, there's, there's nothing that compares to it. There, there's something so real and raw and painful about death. And death is the end of life. Hope you know that. One out of every one person will die. We will all get there one day. And Jesus died. And he breathed his last breath on a cross alone. You know, it's so good to be able to breathe your last breath with somebody, but here Jesus breathed his last, completely forsaken. And his final breath was used to announce the work of salvation as completed. So that as Jesus died on the cross, every man and every woman and every child could be drawn to him because he was lifted up on the cross. And the Savior sealed our salvation with a word and a final breath. And so because of that, with every breath that I have, and with with the last breath that I breathe, I want to thank Jesus for what he did for me at the cross. You know, I don't want to wait till my last breath to praise Jesus for what he did, 
when he breathed his last. If you're waiting for that, I don't know what you're waiting for. Every single breath is a gift from God. I'm very aware of that recently from when my son was in the NICU fighting for breath. Every breath is a gift from God. And will you use it to thank God for what Jesus did for you? And before we move on to verse 38, I want us to look in our Bibles because as I was studying, I was looking over the text and I was seeing something so fascinating that I don't know that I'd seen before which is that every verse, not every verse, but a lot of the verses in the chapters leading up and testifying of the cross, what word does it start with? At least in my Bible, it says, and. You know, and as soon, and Pilate, and the chief priests, and Pilate, but Jesus, and, 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 and. And and in verse 37, we get to this, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And you know, time could have completely stopped there. The Son of God just breathed his last. God could have just closed it up right there. But look what we read in verse 38. And. Time did not stop when Jesus breathed his last. But it actually opened up a whole new way to relate to God. That's the biggest and in the Bible, if I could consider it. Verse 30 says, 38 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Isn't that amazing? The curtain of the temple was what separated the Holy of Holies from the outer sanctuary. It was a symbol of separation between holy God and sinful man. However, the death of Jesus tore that veil of separation in the temple. And how was it torn? Look, it says, it was torn from top to bottom. Because God, who is above, tore the veil from the top so that we who are below can enter into his presence. So that through the blood of Jesus, we can now boldly enter into the throne room of his grace. And that's what sets Christianity apart, I hope you know. That we are not saved by man reaching up to God. That seems to be every other way of religion is man trying to reach God. But we are not the ones who tore the veil of the temple from the bottom of the top to the top. See, Christianity is different because we are saved by God reaching down to man. God tore the veil from the top to the bottom. God did the work of saving and reconciling so that we can simply receive it by his grace as we believe it in faith. And if you think about it right there, that that Jesus did all these things. God was, you know, darkening the skies. He was ripping the veil. He was doing all of these acts in this moment of Jesus' final hour so that you would believe. And Mark shares the testimony of one who did believe when he saw all of these things happening. We see that in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. You know, a lot happened in those final moments that that Mark has been reporting. You know, Matthew says that there was an earthquake that shook the land at the time of Jesus' final breath. The centurion who was kept watch over Jesus was frightened as he watched everything happen. Uh, You could see that 
And, and here's the thing about the centurion. It's not like he hadn't seen hundreds, if not thousands, of people crucified. But to him, there was just something about the whole ordeal of Jesus that, that was just completely different than anything he'd seen. You know, over at the temple, the veil was torn in two. They were standing there, probably still in the outer sanctuary, just like, wait, what? This place that they always feared to enter in once a year was now completely open and exposed. And there's reports in Matthew of saints being raised from the dead on that day, which is fascinating. But what we see on this day and in that final moment is that power was emanating throughout the universe. There was power to shake the earth. There was power to tear the veil. There was power to resurrect the dead. And there was power to immediately draw sinners to God. Because the centurion testifies about the same thing that Mark said when he started his gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. That was almost a year ago when we opened this book to, to study. Mark 1 1, the very first verse that was read aloud in this church plants was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now almost a year later, we've seen Jesus in all of his works, in all of his teachings, and now in the culmination of his death. And, and the centurion is saying, surely, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And Jesus was drawing people to himself as he died on, there on the cross, and, and he hasn't stopped. You know, the whole reason for why Jesus hasn't come back again, which we, when we studied in the Olivet Discourse, which he's coming back, don't forget the second coming of Jesus. But the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he is still drawing people to himself. He's waiting for more people. He's waiting for you, if you haven't said yet, truly, this is the Son of God. Verse 40 to 41, we see who else Jesus drew to himself that day. It says, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I just love this detail that the gospel reports, the faithfulness of women. Um, you know, where, where were the men who walked with Jesus in this moment? You know, all the men are like, oh man, you know. The men were hiding away in fear. You know, John was there, but for the most part it was the women. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and there were three other women. Mary, Mary, there was a lot of Marys in the Bible. Um, three Marys in a Salome were looking on from a distance at Jesus. And, and that word for looking on means that their eyes were fixed on Jesus, and they were with deep contemplation considering what they were seeing. And these are women that had been with Jesus. These are women who, as it also says there, followed him. It's the same word used for the other disciples, meaning that they walked along the same road as Jesus. These women were of the greater number of disciples of Jesus, and they ministered to him, it says. They provided meals for him. They, they opened their homes and provided abundant resources for Jesus and his 12 disciples to do their ministry. 
And verse 41 says that there were many other women who followed him and ministered to him. Just so good that Jesus was ministered to by faithful and bold women. We got some of those in this church, amen? See, it's not only these women, though, that were looking on a distance and seeing what Jesus was doing there on the cross, but there was another man that was looking on, another man who we've not seen yet in the gospel, but this was a man who God raised up in this final hour for a very special task. We see who that man is in verse 42 and verse 43. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we're introduced to this man named Joseph, and he was from the region of Arimathea, which was uh, a Jewish city. He was, in the scriptures, uh, said to be a good and righteous man. We also see in the text there that he was a respected member of the council, which means that he was part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was that council, that group, that tried Jesus and sentenced him to death. And so why does Joseph appear now? Well, we're told in John chapter 19, verse 38, that he was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. See, Joseph, as he sat on that Sanhedrin council, previously lacked the courage to step forward and to stand with Jesus. Perhaps he was afraid of the persecution or the scorn that might come if he identified with Jesus. But there was something stirring up in In this man, Joseph, all along, in his heart, it says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. You know, he was a religious leader who hadn't been blinded by the hypocrisy and by the envy. And and we're told that as he looked for the kingdom of God, that as he witnessed Jesus die, it clicked. He knew what he had been looking for had been found. And the kingdom of God was found in King Jesus, and his kingdom is not of this world. And so he took courage. I love that phrase. He took courage. He lacked it before, and God was merciful for his lack of courage. But by the grace of God, the Lord was putting courage into Joseph's heart, and he took it. He took courage And he did what God was calling him to do. It was the day before the Sabbath, and Joseph knew that Jesus would have to have a proper burial. If he was to have a proper burial, it would need to happen before Sabbath. It was the day of preparation, the day when people prepared for the Sabbath. And this is the day that Jesus would go, or Joseph would go to prepare Jesus' body for burial. But look, Joseph couldn't just walk up and take Jesus off the cross. He needed to get permission. He needed to go to Pilate, who was, you know, the one who sentenced Jesus to the cross and was in charge of uh, who was on him and who was coming off of him. And so he goes to Pilate. We know that Pilate was a man who was feared among the Jews. Nevertheless, Joseph gained the courage to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. And, And when he does that, we read in verse 44 to 45, Pilate's response. 
Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Pilate was shocked to find out that Jesus had already died on the cross, that it only took him six hours to die. And Pilate wanted to confirm with the centurion whether it was true, and was Jesus dead? And and the centurion said, yes, Jesus is dead. Again, that centurion would have seen hundreds, if not thousands, of dead people on crosses. I think he knew if someone was dead. And and if you're not sure about it, he double-checked it by taking a spear and piercing it through the side of Jesus, and blood and water flowed out. The centurion goes and he verifies the death of Jesus to Pilate, and then Pilate gives permission to Joseph to remove the body of Jesus from the cross and to give him a proper burial according to the custom of the Jews. See, most of the time, the Romans, it was their custom to leave bodies on crosses to rot, to let the animals come and ravage the bodies, but the Father would not allow his Holy One to see decay. He rose uh, Joseph up to this occasion. He prepared for him a grave. It it was only going to be a borrowed grave because he only needed it for three days. But Joseph goes and he takes the body of Jesus and prepares it for burial. You know, these details about Jesus being dead are actually very significant if you think about it. The resurrection of Jesus is the Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection Uh, Paul said if Christ is not risen this whole gathering right now is a joke but if he is alive then it it verifies and makes true the claims that Jesus made and so many opponents of the gospel throughout time have tried to come up with different theories as a way to disprove the resurrection because If the resurrection did happen, if Jesus really did die and was really buried and actually rose from the grave, just as he said he would, which he predicted multiple times before his death, then Jesus is worth listening to. And his claims are backed by real and verifiable proof. Let me, let me tell you one theory that people have tried to come up with to try to explain away the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is this idea that Jesus just fainted on the cross. That, that he was unconscious for a while. That he, he had a little fainting. And, and then they pulled his body off the cross and then he kind of came to and then he went around appearing to different people. Do you think Jesus fainted on the cross? Go ask the centurion if Jesus fainted on the cross. Go ask Joseph, who went to the cross and pulled the lifeless body of Jesus down off the cross, and ask Joseph if Jesus fainted. Jesus did not faint. No, it says in verse 45, the corpse of Jesus was granted to Joseph. Now, Joseph goes to get the body of Jesus, and guys, I I don't mean to be crude, but you kind of have to consider for a moment, like, the kind of job that this was. Joseph needed some help, so he calls Nicodemus, a buddy of his, who is also a secret disciple. 
He's the guy who in John chapter 3 met with Jesus in the middle of the night, and Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And he also said those words, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And you better believe that when Nicodemus went and saw Jesus on that cross, he knew the fulfillment of those words. And so together they go, Joseph and Nicodemus, they hike up to the hill of Calvary to take the Son of God off the cross to bury him. In verse 46, Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the tomb. And again, I I don't mean to be crude, but you've got to think about the kind of job that this was. To take a body off a cross meant that Joseph had to use, you know, some sort of tool with leverage to pull the nails out of the hands and the feet of Jesus. Joseph would have handled with his hands the lifeless body of Jesus. Blood would have covered Joseph as he wrapped the scourged body of Jesus in that linen shroud And then he took Jesus in his wrapped body and they went to a nearby tomb and were told that the tomb had never been used before because most think, I think scripture actually tells us that it belonged to Joseph. It was his family tomb, something that he was willing to give away to Jesus. And this tomb, man, this was expensive. It was a personal tomb that nobody had ever been in before. And Jesus, there wrapped in this linen shroud, is carried by Joseph and Nicodemus and placed inside the tomb. And then it is sealed over with a large stone that rolled over the entrance. Verse 47 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is, this is another important detail that gives us proof of the resurrection Because for Jewish people, you need multiple witnesses. There's two more witnesses to tell you where he was laid. Multiple witnesses could verify that the lifeless body of Jesus was laid in a tomb and that it was sealed and that it was kept watch over. So Jesus is now in the tomb. All the women go home. Joseph and Nicodemus, they go home and they clean themselves up. And Jesus' body is now in the tomb, just waiting for the greatest day in history. Come back next week and find out what happens. <laughs> He's risen, folks. Jesus is alive. And I can't wait to talk about the resurrection next week. We've heard so much over the last couple weeks of the death of Jesus. We've heard today the burial of of Jesus. Next week, we get to claim the victory, amen? But we get to claim it now. Jesus is alive. We don't have to wait to discover whether it is so. It is so. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you that as we enter into a time of worship, Lord, that we would consider where we are in our stories we've heard your story Jesus we've heard it plain and clear 
that you died for sin, standing in the place of sinful man so that we could stand in your place of righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you were buried and that three days later, you came forth from that borrowed tomb. Jesus, we thank you today that because you experienced that forsaking feeling from the Father, we don't have to experience that. We get to come boldly into your presence today, Jesus, because of what you've done for us. We thank you that you've defeated sin, you've defeated death, the worst enemy, and you defeated the devil, and you have given us the victory. And as we sang this morning, we are more than conquerors in you, Jesus. We thank you for this morning. Lord, have your way in our hearts now, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.